Thank you. <laughs> you don't uh, have to know me all that well. Just have a couple conversations with me, really, to know that I'm a super big fan of Disneyland. I love that place. I love it. It's great. People talk about it being this magical place for kids. I always want to say, yeah, it is. That's, that's true. But it's not just for kids. It's also for grown-up kids like me. Uh, I am right in there. Every time I've gone from the first time I went when I was just three years old. I got a picture of this here. Where's the next slide? Look at that. There's me. Hi. Oh. Hey, Winnie. From the first time I went, at three years of age, and the subsequent 12 times that I have been there, every single time, it's been me right in there. I love it. I know it doesn't get old or boring. And yes, I plan to go back again. Now, very helpfully, my wife and daughters, they also love it. They love it there. That could get really awkward at vacation planning time if they didn't like it there. But they do. They, they want to go there. And in fact, I come from a long line of Disneyland lovers. My parents love Disneyland. All my siblings love it, as well as their kids. There's been times when we've been able to go together. It's been a great time of fun. But you know who doesn't love Disneyland? My wife's family. They don't love it. They've never been before. They have no plans to go there ever. Apparently, I, I need to verify this story, but apparently there was a time growing up as kids, they were even offered the chance to go there, and they said no. Unbelievable, I know. They said no. So it's funny, that we've been there twice as a family now. We'll be walking around, crowds of people, it's rides, characters walking around, and my wife, she'll, she'll chuckle to me, and under her breath, she'll just say, my father would hate this. It's <laughs> awesome. Now, just because the Siemens clan are not Disneyland people, so what? Yeah, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with them. It doesn't mean that they hate Disneyland. It just means their idea of a happy, enjoyable vacation is not that. Right? They don't see that Disneyland is something a lot of people find enjoyable as a vacation. It's not for them. Fine. And that happens actually in a lot of different places in life, with our families, with different friend relationships. We, we have these differences of opinion, and in the end, it just kind of comes down to preference. You like this? It's not for me. I kind of like this. It's fine. But one of the places where that generally true principle does not apply is when it comes to the message of the gospel. It doesn't apply that. Now, sure, you might hear it stated that way by people all, the, all kinds of places. People will say, oh, yeah, yeah, religion... You know, that's good for some people, it's just not for me. You'll hear that, but is that true? Is that, is that accurate to say that the gospel is just for some people? Matter of preference. Now, if you uh, believe the gospel, you've been changed and transformed by it, you might say, well, no, that's not true. The gospel's for everyone. It's good news for everyone. But I wonder if sometimes... In our practice, we don't reveal that the strength of that conviction is not always there. Here's what I mean. Consider our passage this morning. Paul arrives at this city of Athens, the historic uh, place of guys like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, one of the greatest centers of culture and intellectual discourse. And he gets there, he's distressed and provoked. Now why? Is that because pagan temples and sculptures are, are not for him? It's not his preference? No, it's because 
this place that's supposed to be world-renowned for thought and reason, exploration of ideas, is also filled with superstition and idolatry. In fact, I wonder if Paul didn't have this exact experience in mind later on when he wrote to the church at Rome, uh, Romans 1.18, talking about how idolatry, which uh, is the worship of any created thing instead of the creator, idolatry is actually the opposite of knowledge. It's the suppression, the willful suppression of truth. But here's my point. We read about Paul coming to Athens and he's reasoning with people in the synagogue, reasoning with people in the marketplace, and we're kind of like, yeah, great, that's what Paul does. But all of a sudden, when that reasoning there earns him this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to preach the gospel in the Areopagus with the best and brightest minds of the known world, all of a sudden, I don't know, if you're anything like me, all of a sudden you, there's a part of you that just kind of wants to hold Paul back a bit and be like, you know what, I don't know. Why? Because... Listen, Paul was provoked and disappointed in all kinds of places. Athens is no exception to that. But what is different about Athens is that its, its present status, as well as its historic reputation, is this major center of culture and thought. These are the superpowers of people here in Athens. It's one thing to present the gospel in synagogues and marketplaces. It's another thing when you're standing here before the cultural and intellectual elites of the world... I mean, you look at even their, their response when they see Paul talking in the marketplace, and they're like, what is this idiot saying? You know, I can see them looking down their glasses at him. What's this idiot saying? What's this babbler talking about? And you're just like, ooh, man, Paul, I don't know. This, this kind of seems like we start reading about his address at the Areopagus, and we're like, it seems like you're way out of your league here, man. This is not your weight class right now, and, and, and maybe... We'd even want to say, maybe this is an unreachable class. Maybe the, maybe the gospel's not for these people. Maybe you should just stick to marketplaces and synagogues. I don't know if you feel like that ever. I do. But here's the problem with that. Before Paul ever makes that statement about idolatry in Romans 1.18, he says very clearly in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Everyone. Everyone who believes, which means that for Paul, just because maybe these philosophers, these intellectual superpowers might be out of his weight class, they're not out of God's. And we've seen that throughout the book of Acts as we've been going through it. The, the broadly applicational message of the gospel is saving all kinds of different people. Even last week in one chapter alone, we saw it, it's saving a demon-possessed slave girl. A blue-collar jailer, uh, upper-class fashionista, saving all kinds of different people. What we're going to see in our passage today is that the gospel is also powerful to save the cultural and intellectual elites of the world, the celebrities, the politicians, university professors and CEOs, all those people we meet all the time in a city like Vancouver, which shows us what we see here is the gospel is not just for certain types of people, it's for everyone. That if you have a human heart, which pretty sure those social and cultural elites also have, then you've also got both the same proclivity to worship things instead of the God who made them, and consequently the same need for gospel freedom. So, in order to learn from Paul's really masterful example here in Acts 17 of the witness to the elites, I want to look at our passage in three ways. I want to show you how Paul shows us here how to be provoked to action. 
how to have respectful engagement, and then finally, how to make reasoned gospel connections, provoked to action, how to have respectful engagement, make reasoned gospel connections. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again, please? Acts 17, beginning of verse 16, follow along with me. So we look at how the gospel is good news for everyone, even those people in our own lives who we might think of as beyond its reach. So let's look first of all at provoked to action. Provoked to action. Now look with me at verse 16 first of all. Paul's hanging out in Athens here. You might wonder maybe was that a good idea to send him on ahead? It's a little bit like sending your wife into H&M. Am I going to see her again? They send Paul ahead. He's going there. He's walking around observing all this thing. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy, and then we read this in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, it's important to see, historically speaking, describing this city as full of idols, that's actually not an exaggeration. Uh, They've uh, excavated great portions of Athens now today, and this marketplace that you see Paul uh, speaking in was likely uh, the Roman Forum, the Greek Agora, where archaeologists have found numerous, hundreds of statues and pagan temples. They've uncovered uh, the temple to Athena, the Parthenon, as well as uh, the temples to the goddess Roma, the Emperor Augustine that stood atop of the Acropolis overlooking the city. In fact, when Paul was taken here to the Areopagus to speak, he would have clearly been in view of the Acropolis. He would have seen those temples up there. And Mars Hill, where he gives this speech, it's overlooking the marketplace. So he would have been able to see all these statues and idols down there as well. In fact, this sheer volume of of idolatry led one satirist of that day to state that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. When we see in verse 16, when Paul arrives and he sees all this, the NIV tells us that he was greatly distressed. This version of our translation says he was greatly distressed when he saw this. The original term in the Greek talks about being provoked, stirred up emotionally to anger, actually, which is the same term used in the Old Testament when God is describing how he feels towards Israel when they make the golden calf and begin to worship it. He's provoked to anger when he sees all this. Now, already there's a lot of different stuff we could talk about. One of the things I want to highlight very simply is just this. When Paul sees the worship, the praise that is due to God alone being offered instead to created things, to statues and temples like this, two things happen. It provokes him. It emotionally stirs him up, grieving him and angering his heart. And secondly, that provocation stirs him to action. Stirs him to do something, okay? He doesn't just shake his head and just tisk and, and head back to his hotel room to tweet or blog about it. He, he does something. It leads him to action. The rest of this passage showing us how this provocation leads him to actual gospel engagement with people. When you consider that, I think the question it leads us to have to answer ourselves is, okay, what about us? When we look around our world and our city, we see a place that is no less full of idols, no less full of places where worship that belongs to God is given instead to created things, does it provoke us? Does it distress us at all? You think of our purpose statement as a church, when we see our city and world, do we look at it and do we see a place that's actually even in need of renewal? 
Now hear me, I'm not speaking about kind of a displeasure or an uncomfortability with things not being like they were in the good old days. I'm saying when you see the worship that rightly belongs to God being offered to people and someone else, other things, and many women trapped in that false worship, does it provoke you? Does it grieve you? Because you see, Paul's problem here wasn't temple construction and statue building. He was provoked with a holy jealousy when he saw the reason behind why they did those things. Someone, many have rightly said, no one ever created an idol of stone or wood that didn't already exist and was worshipped in their heart. So what provoked Paul was he saw God being robbed of the glory that was rightly his and people sprinting towards God's just judgment because of it. So he wanted to do something about it. And I'll be fair, I'm not going to speak for any single one of you here. I'll talk about myself. When I look at my own life, if I'm real honest with you, I'm, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed that there are absolutely still places where I see, I look around, I see the worship that rightly belongs to God offered to someone else or some other thing, and it doesn't provoke me. It doesn't stir me up, at least not enough to engage it at all, to do something about it whether that's an inordinate devotion to a sports team, materialism, worship of uh, pleasure, worship of the intellect, whatever it is, where my heart should be at least pricked somehow by seeing that misplaced worship, if I'm honest, a lot of times I'm mostly okay with it. I'm mostly okay with it. And my great fear is that the reason I'm mostly okay with it is probably because, to some degree, I still worship those, own, those things in my heart too. That's why I'm okay with it, and, and it's why I daily need God's continued grace and help to, to redirect that worship that's, that's His back towards Him. So that's me. I'm, I'm putting my cards out on the table. How about you? What, what, what do you feel when you look around and see worship that's God's being taken? See people trapped in, in worship of things that can't truly satisfy them. What does it do to your heart? May God protect us from becoming numbed towards this kind of holy provocation. May we protect us from being so acclimatized to a world that daily robs God of worship that it doesn't even affect us anymore. Because as we see in our passage here today, we still desperately need, we always need to have that feeling, that provocation in our hearts. Why? Because that provocation is the thing that, is one of the things anyway, that moves us into engagement. When we're provoked to what we see, it leads us to want to do something about it. And if we lose the provocation, we won't, we'll no longer engage it. Which is the thing I want us to talk about next in our passage. Once Paul feels that provocation at all this idolatry he sees in Athens, it leads him to respectful engagement. Respectful engagement. I think this is a really important balancing point to our discussion because we see Paul's provocation leading him to action, leading him to engagement, both with the people in the synagogue as well as in the marketplace. But the way that he does it, the, the way, the, the manner in which he does it, and the thing which then provides in this incredible platform to speak and present the gospel in the Areopagus, we see is in verse 17. Look with me there. Right at the beginning, it tells us the way he did this, the way he engaged this was he reasoned with people. He reasoned with them. 
And before you give in to the, the temptation to maybe want to just dismiss that and say, well, is that really an effective gospel strategy? Consider the way God himself engages with his rebellious, idolatrous people in the book of Isaiah. Listen to what he says to them here. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, and though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Even God himself reasons with us when he sees us caught in idolatry. And honestly, if you look through this entire passage that we read this morning, which almost every biblical scholar and commentator agrees is one of the pinnacles of a contextualized gospel presentation, not once, not once do you see Paul uh, blasting people, shaming them, talking down to them. You see him reasoning with them, respectfully engaging people that he so desperately wants to share the hope of the gospel with. And think about it. Do you honestly think these Epicurean Stoic philosophers are going to invite this unknown foreigner to speak on one of the most hallowed theaters of intellectual discourse if they see Paul in the synagogue, in the marketplace, and every time he's talking, people are just like, whatever. The guy's a moron. They're going to invite him to speak? Like someone today is going to say, hey, that guy sounds really arrogant. He sounds like he's done no research and uh, he hasn't considered anyone's opinion but his own. Let's invite him to give a TED Talk. It's not going to happen. They don't invite those people to those stages. People that get invited to those stages are people who've thought it through, who've done some engagement. So Paul earns a chance to be heard on this greater stage because these philosophers see Paul's ability to engage with a variety of different worldviews and ideas in a winsome and respectful way. And also, I want to point out, Remember, it says they love to hear new ideas. That's what they always wanted to hear. They wanted to hear new ideas. What's new? What's new? Which shows us that the gospel is different than religion. Because they'd heard religion, but they hadn't heard this. So the gospel is not the same thing as religion. And then look at verse 22 now. Once he gets that on that stage at the Areopagus, he continues that very same respectful engagement. Once he gets to this stage, he doesn't come in there... Walk in and be like, this is my opportunity now. Ha ha. Men of Athens, y'all a bunch of morons. What, what are you doing here? Look at all these stats. This is the birthplace of logic and reason? Ha. Does he do that? No. Walks in, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now what's he doing there? What, what's that about? Well, he's respectfully engaging his listeners. Great, thank you for listening. But how? How is he doing it? Well, a couple things I think we see here. First of all, he's not talking down to people. He's not talking down to them. He speaks to them in a way that guards and protects their honor as other intelligent human beings that might have some ideas of their own. And if you think that's common, you've never read the comments section on a Facebook post. He speaks to them as fellow human beings and guards their honor as other intellectual, smart people. Secondly, he demonstrates a willingness to research, to understand what he's talking about before he starts talking. He's engaging with ideas, even ideas he doesn't agree with. Look at verse 23. He talks about, I've walked around your city. I've, I've done my research. I've done my homework. Observed your objects of worship. You see, he doesn't call them idols. He says, your objects of worship. He's carefully contextualizing the message for them. Later on in verse 28, he's even quoting some of their well-known authors. He's quoting the lyrics of the top 40 songs of the day. 
everyone would have been familiar with. In fact, this is brilliant advice that was given to me when it comes to the idea of respectfully engaging people whose ideas maybe you don't agree with. This advice was given to me years ago. I think it can be helpful for any one of us as we seek to respectfully engage people in conversation. They said this, until you can speak back your opponent's viewpoint to them on something in such a way that they would say, yes, that's what I believe, that's my position. Until you can do that, you're actually not able to critique their position. At least not in a way that's actually going to bring about any change of mind for them. Because think about it. If someone doesn't feel respected and heard by you, you actually know what you're talking about, why should they listen seriously to you? You're demonstrating respect by showing, I've actually heard and processed and can speak back your view to you. Secondly, because how can you even start to critique something, a position, if you're not even sure that that's what your opponent holds? We need to know what you're talking about. Maybe that sounds self-evident to you, and it is, and yet it's frightening the speed at which we rush in to give our opinion, to weigh in, when we're not even sure yet, if we haven't even established what the subject is that we're talking about. We just love to give our opinion. And what makes Paul's gospel presentation here so powerful is, first of all, yes, he's speaking the gospel truth as a spirit-empowered witness of Jesus, yes. But he's contextualizing the message for people. He's respectfully engaging his hearers in such a way that shows that he's listening. He's not just speaking. And it sounds crazy, but listen, there are people who look at Paul's address here at Mars Hill and they call it a cop-out. They call it a failed gospel opportunity because he never got to Jesus. Which, first of all, that's silly because he gets interrupted. As soon as he mentions the resurrection... Conversation gets shut down, and he doesn't get a chance to get to Jesus, which he was clearly headed there. But secondly, listen, if everything that we've talked about many times together as a church family, about discipleship being a process, a process for both Christian and non-Christian people, where people steadily, we want them to move steadily away from hatred of Jesus and closer towards loving him, if that's what discipleship is, there's no way you could call one speaking to people like Paul gives here as a failed gospel opportunity. The only way you see Acts 17 as a failure is if you see the gospel as a hand grenade that you just throw at people. That if your whole uh, strategy for gospel engagement is just about being right, it's the only way you see Acts 17 as a failure. Now, yes, Paul is right. He is Right, but listen, if his missionary strategy is to kick down the door of Athens, coming with both barrels blazing, telling everybody about how they're so wrong and he's so right, he's going to lose any opportunity he has to share the hope of the gospel and people actually be transformed by it in two minutes. In fact, I'd argue he'd already have lost the opportunity before he even began to speak, if that's his way of engaging. When you consider what I believe are some of the key elements to an effective witness for Jesus in your own life and with the people he's placed you around, one of the top, right up near the top of the list, has got to be humble, respectful engagement of people. It's got to be there. Because I don't know why it is, but it's like we're so afraid that if I listen to opinion that's not the same as mine, if I engage with it, it's somehow going to weaken my own position. If I listen to you, I'm, I'm surrendering, I'm giving up power to you. I would argue just the opposite is true. The opposite is true because if you're deeply convinced 
of the truth of the gospel that saved you, you should be unafraid to listen to and interact with any opinion, any worldview. doesn't mean you're going to be able to exhaustively answer everyone's questions. No, but you're not afraid to listen and interact with those ideas as though that listening to it is somehow going to make the gospel less true. It won't. Gospel is true. And if you're convinced of it, you can engage respectfully with any opinion, even ones that are very vehemently opposed to yours. Beyond that, very simply, if you're not willing to listen to a person that you're witnessing to and you only want to respond, how do you even know if you're responding to the questions they have? Respectfully engage with those you want to be witnesses to and you'll have amazing opportunities to do so. Okay, that's provoked to action, respectful engagement. The last thing I want us to see from our passage is how Paul takes what he's seen and heard now in order to draw reasoned gospel connections. Reasoned gospel connections. Now, I'm not going to go into a long discourse of Greek philosophy, as cool as I think that would be. I do want to give us just a brief sketch of who these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers are that Paul is preaching to, who they are. First of all, the Epicurean group. This was a school of thought, a worldview, that saw the purpose of life as the pursuit of pleasure. How to escape from pain, suffering, uh, anything fear like that. They, they sort of believed in gods, but if, they, if the gods existed at all, they were distant and remote, and they had no influence or interaction with human affairs. Conversely, on the other side, the Stoic group, they held a worldview that did believe in God, but they saw God in a pantheistic way. God is in all things. They spoke of God as the world soul. They were deeply committed to reason as the supreme way of living. And they saw the world as determined by fate, where we must resign ourselves to pursue duty even in the face of extreme suffering. I mean, we even hear about people being stoic in their endurance of suffering today. But just considering those two groups, even generally speaking, one that's about living life for pleasure in today with no idea of judgment or an afterlife, and one that's all about seeing God in everything and reason and intellect being the chief ways of living, I, I dare you to show me how we don't have those exact same groups of people everywhere in Vancouver. They just don't call themselves that anymore. But what's really masterful about the way that Paul presents the gospel in the Areopagus is that he speaks to both of those worldviews by giving these reasoned gospel connections. I want to highlight just a few of them for you and then show you how it is that we could do this in our own lives, in our own witness today. Look first of all at verse 24 and 25. Here, Paul is addressing the pantheism of that first Stoic group. And he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So he's saying, look, you're going to all this work to build all these temples, offer all these sacrifices to hundreds of different gods. Let me show you about the one God who is the maker of heaven and earth and everything in it and the one who is Lord and sovereign over all of it. Let me show you that God. And he's saying, of course, as well, along with that, he's saying, let me show you a God who is truly worthy of your worship because he's so big, he could never be contained in one of your beautiful temples. Let me show you a God who is truly worthy of your worship because he, he, he's so complete within himself. He doesn't need your sacrifices and offerings because he's not actually dependent on you. That's the God I want to tell you about. 
See, he's making gospel connections for them. Epicurean group, he's got something to say to them as well. Look at verse 26 and 27. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. He determined the times set for them, the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him, perhaps reach out for him, find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So here Paul's claiming not only is there a supreme God who exists, he's not remote, he's not distant, he's close enough that if you just reach out for him, you could find him. He says there, verse 26, He's also sovereignly in control of your lives, where you live, how you operate. He's he's deeply involved in your life. If you flip over to verse uh, 29 through 31, there he's also lovingly warning this group that thinks there's, there's no afterlife, there's no future judgment coming. He's saying, God has actually set a time. This God has set a time when he will judge the earth. I need to be prepared for that. So Paul is addressing both of these groups and challenging their perspective worldviews with the truth of who God is, but again, he's doing it in this respectful way, connecting the beliefs he knows they already hold with the gospel. Essentially, he's, he's, he's trying to find an area of common ground, an area of common agreement. He's saying, okay, hey, you, you worship God, you believe that there's some sort of a deity, something beyond this life, me too. And then he, takes, he goes from that point of agreement and then begins to present them with the God of the Bible. One of the clearest examples of that you see in verse 23. Flip back there quickly. This is where one of the most famous parts in Paul's Mars Hill address is seen where he talks about that altar to the unknown God. You see, people in Athens were so fearful, so superstitious of, I don't want to upset any of these gods, I don't want to anger any of them, that they'd even built this kind of catch-all altar to the unknown god. Just in case we happen to miss any deities that we didn't know about, which if you think about it, it doesn't make sense. It's like bringing flowers and a card to your wife that says, happy any celebration that I may have missed this year. I love you. Like, it's not going to work out good for you. Same thing here. That's, this is what they're trying to just make sure we don't miss anything. But it's clear Paul moves from this area of common agreement, worship of God. You're trying to worship some God. And then he says, now let me reveal that God to you. Second half of verse 23. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I want to proclaim to you. What he's doing in this address, particularly in verse 23, drawing these reasoned gospel connections, he's saying, look, I can, you can already sense there's something beyond what you can see with your eyes. That's why you're so religious. That's why you're building all these temples. And this temple in particular, this altar to the unknown, God says you're willing to admit that there may be something more than what you can figure out with your own human reason. He's saying you, you already know this is true. Let me show you all those desires, those questions that you have that would make you build that altar. Let me show you how they're pointing you to an answer, to an end, to a fulfillment in this Jesus I want to proclaim to you. It's masterful. And maybe you'd say, well, yeah, it's Paul. Of course, he could do that. I, I could never do that. In my own life, I want to say to you, yes, you can. Yes, you can. You can do this exact same thing in your own life around whoever God places you around. Those people who, who you think, man, they're, they're so smart, they're going to rip me apart if I start presenting Jesus to them. Or, man, they're so set up. They're so obviously doing well in life. They don't need God. Why? I don't think the gospel is really for them. You can make these same 
gospel connections to those people who seem to have no need of God in their lives, and this is how you do it. Very simply, you do exactly what we see Paul doing in our passage. You look for the idols. The way you make these reasoned gospel connections is you look for the idols. And maybe you say, well, that's easy for Paul. They were right there in front of him. He could see them. Statues everywhere. It's not so easy for me. And I would say, yeah, sure, that's true. But remember, an idol is only built to worship a God that's already worshipped in the heart. So it doesn't matter who it is. Look for what are the people, what are the places, what are the things that you see this person worshiping. Maybe it's obvious things like money, possession, sex, whatever that is, or, 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 or whatever the thing happens to be. Maybe it's something less obvious. Maybe you see they worship their family. They worship their career. They worship the environment. Whatever it is, 99% of the time, I would argue maybe even 100% of the time, that idol is going to be something good that God made in order to point our worship back up to Him, but they're now worshiping as a God instead. That's what it's going to be, whatever you see in their lives. And when you can respectfully reason with people, connect the, the dots back to Jesus for them as the only one who can actually satisfy that need that they're hoping to find satisfied in that idol. See, Jesus is the only one who can actually meet that need for you. These idols will fail you. When you can do that for people, you're going to see lights go on all over the place for people. And by God's grace, I know some of those people you'll see believe the gospel and be changed by it forever. And that's just what we see in these closing verses of our passage here this morning. Even among these elites, even among these uber-intellectuals in Athens, yeah, some of them sneer at the message and reject it. But look at the second half of verse 32. Some of them, their thinking has been challenged now. They're like, I didn't think about that. You know, I, I want to talk more about this. Can, can you come back and talk more about this? That's already discipleship. They've already moved further away from hatred of Jesus and love of him. And some of them are changed right on the spot. Even some of the leading people of this council, they're changed in a moment. Are you starting to see it now? In all that we've covered here, are you starting to see the gospel is not just for certain types of people? It's for Jews and Gentiles. It's for outcasts and jailers. It's for Pharisees and philosophers, for peasants and for kings. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, even for you and for me. point I want to leave us with this morning, what we've seen throughout this whole series through this book, the book of Acts, first 17 chapters anyway, is what God's call and mission to the church is. The mission of the church that was given from the very beginning is to be Jesus-empowered witnesses wherever he's placed us. And we saw in our passage today, he has placed us individually in places and, and in families and among people that he wants us to be witnesses to. And then... The point is, as he enables us, whatever the cost, whatever the suffering, to see his kingdom spread to the very ends of the earth. That's the mission he's given to his church, period. To be his witnesses. Spread his kingdom to the end of the earth. And what we see actually is because of the faithfulness of this pioneer church that we've been looking at in the book of Acts, their faithfulness to do that is the reason you and I are sitting here today. 
loving that same Jesus, empowered by that same Spirit and seeking to see that same kingdom grown. May God find us to be faithful. May the church 2,000 years from now look back on us and see that we too were faithful to Jesus' mission for his church.